Welcome to the Expert Series, brought to you by the Lupus Foundation of America. Our health education team is proud to present Lupus Experts discussing topics to help you live better. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dwayne, and I'll be your host. Today, we welcome Grace Whiting, President and CEO of the National Alliance for Caregiving. Grace leads the National Alliance for Caregiving, which aims to build partnerships in research, advocacy, and innovation to make life better for family caregivers. Grace led the nation's first national public policy study of more than 1,400 rare disease caregivers in collaboration with Global Gene. She has spoken on caregiving at national and international conferences and has served as a resource to leading media outlets on the topics of caregiving and aging. We're delighted to have you join us today, Grace. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Let's get started. Our first question, what is a caregiver and what roles can a caregiver fulfill and why is having a caregiver important? That's a great question because this whole what is a caregiver is something that's actually very hotly debated. A lot of people who are caring for someone because of a disability or a healthcare need don't feel comfortable using that term caregiver or family caregiver. But in general, when we talk about caregiving, we are talking about those folks who are volunteers who are typically unpaid and they're taking care of an older person, a person with a disability. They may be taking care of a child with a condition like lupus. And when they take care of them, they do a number of things. That might be high-touch activities that we would call activities of daily living. So helping somebody eat, get dressed, go to the bathroom. There's also care coordination activities, arguing with the insurance company, for example, or trying to navigate various appointments between different specialists or navigate the diagnostic journey. And then many caregivers also help with medication, with the care plan itself. So this could be everything from making sure that someone is taking their medicine on time and in the right dosage. It could be helping with activities like giving injections or eye drops or suppositories, all kinds of real hands-on nursing type skills. And this question, why is having a caregiver important? Well, we look at it from the macro level. Caregivers are really the backbone of our health and social care system in the United States. We estimate when we've looked at it with AARP that there are 53 million people in the United States that are in this type of role. It's roughly one out of every five Americans. And I think it's important because it means that in a perfect world, when we get sick or we get older, we want the people we love to be there to care for us. So it's important not only that caregivers are empowered to do that, but that when they are in a position to take care of someone else, that they don't also forget to take care of themselves. That's very important that the caregiver has to take care of themselves so that they can take care of the person that they are caring for. Question number two, who can be a caregiver? Are there alternatives if you don't have someone in your life to fulfill that role? Anybody could be a caregiver, and we see that when we look at the data. So in our study with AARP, Caregiving in the U.S. 2020, we looked at a nationally representative sample of Americans who are taking care of another person. And it's every generation represented from Gen Z all the way to the greatest generation, every demographic background that you can imagine, urban versus rural, veterans, people who may identify as LGBTQ. So anywhere 
any background you can think of, a person could become a caregiver. And certainly advocates in the field have said that. First Lady Rosalind Carter famously has said that there's four kinds of people in the world, people who will be a caregiver, who are caregivers, who have been a caregiver, and those who will need care. It's really a common human experience. If you're in a situation where you don't have someone in your life to help you care, the first step would be to go and talk with your medical care provider or to talk with your home and community-based service providers. So this could be, for example, calling one of the faith communities in your neighborhood to find out if they might help you with transportation. It could be talking with your insurance company to find out what type of assistance you can get with everyday activities. It may even look at hiring someone either through a self-directed care program like we see in the Medicaid program or sometimes out of pocket a home care aid to come in and really help you with some of those activities that allow you to really stay independent, to have dignity, to feel comfortable in your own home and living on your own terms. I think many people can relate to this next question. I know I face the same challenge. How can someone provide caregiving from a distance? What are some tips on the best ways to do this? Caring for someone from a distance was a major issue when we think about the last couple of years and the COVID-19 pandemic. The first thing is to identify the best way to communicate, not just with that person, but with others that might be in the care circle, so to speak, or the care ecosystem. So perhaps there are things that you can do from a long distance perspective that not only help the person you're taking care of, but also make it easier for others who might be in that same care system. I think about, for example, maybe a couple of grown siblings are taking care of another person in their family. The one that lives closer may be taking on a lot of activities of care that are physical, but they could probably use help doing things like managing finances, navigating health insurance, understanding different treatment plans and what might work best for different folks. I think a lot of families can also take advantage of what might be offered through the health systems that they're in, particularly the use of electronic health records, the use of teleconferencing or telehealth, which uh, we saw so much of during the pandemic. So being able to have a conversation with a physician or a nurse over your computer or over your telephone and finding opportunities where those medical professionals can answer important questions or show you how to help care for someone else. That can be an incredible tool. And there's also, I think, just this piece about isolation. How do we stay in touch? So often we think about caregiving as a healthcare issue, but there's also that piece of just being available to someone, being close to them, spending time together doing something fun. So that could be everything from a virtual concert or a shopping trip via Zoom to having family get-togethers with folks that otherwise wouldn't get together all in the same place. What resources are available for caregivers? And how can families take full advantage of these resources? Well, this is going to sound like a lawyer answer, but the answer to the question, what are some resources for caregivers, is it depends. The resources are going to depend a lot on the person that you're caring for. If you're caring for an adult who is 18 or older that has a disability, many communities have a branch of what's called the National Family Caregiver Support Program. And you can go online to eldercarelocator.gov 
don't let the name fool you because it's actually the caregiver programs for a bigger audience. But if you go to the elder care locator, you can find what might be available in the area by zip code. So that's one place to start just to get information, support groups, access to respite care, other key pieces of just the caregiving experience that might be helpful. If you're caring for someone who's in the Veterans Administration, or you are a veteran who gets care through the Veteran Health Administration, that is another place to go where you might be able to find caregiving support. There's a very robust program to help care for people who have combat-related injuries, but a lot of the information is broader and would help people that have lupus or other conditions that maybe have long disease trajectories and, and some uncertainty. The last thing I would say is for many people, they forget that sometimes their workplace will offer an employee assistance program or EAP where you might be able to get help with legal questions such as how do I help somebody with the power of attorney or how do I get a medical power of attorney. EAPs can also sometimes have geriatric care managers. They may have caseworkers that can help adults that are dealing with different healthcare conditions. And they also offer, in many cases, stress and wellness programs. So EAPs can be great, as well as just generally checking in with the human resource department if you're working. The last thing I would say that's kind of exciting is the federal government has a new plan for family caregivers. They just sent recommendations to Congress in what's called the RAVE Family Caregiving Report. Now, it's not resources yet, but it's on the horizon. So I would tell people to keep looking, keep pushing, and if there's something that you don't have that you need, don't be afraid to reach out to people in Congress, your lawmakers, and point it out to them that there's a key component here that's missing. Excellent advice. If a person or a family member needs a caregiver, how much can that cost? And are there ways that people can get help with those costs? In general, if somebody needs to hire outside help, it's going to depend a lot. And again, <laughs> with the lawyer answer, if you're hiring somebody to help out with care, there's a couple of different ways to approach it. The first is just to get a sense of what is the activity or help that you actually need and to bracket that out into different kinds of activities. That's probably the first most cost-effective way to begin to look for help. So you can think of that as, I need someone to spend time with the person so that I can go out and go to a meeting or get my hair cut or go grocery shopping. And there's those companion type activities. Those are activities that often can be picked up by volunteers in the community, by people in different faith centers, by neighbors, by other family members, because it's not a heavy lift for a volunteer to come in and do that. The second would be those care coordination activities. The third would be the sort of activities with getting dressed and helping somebody eat. And then of course, the medical nursing tasks. So when you get outside of companion care, and you sit down and you say, this is really where I need help. I think the first thing to do is evaluate, is this something that the healthcare plan that this person is on will be able to cover? So for example, if someone is on the Medicaid program, they might be able to get what's called a home and community-based service waiver that would allow them to get additional money to pay a friend or a home care worker to help provide some of this support. There are other types of plans, Medicare Advantage or managed care plans. Sometimes you'll see them called managed long-term service and support plans that offer supports to families that need that additional home-based care. 
And then there is, of course, out-of-pocket care, which varies depending on whether you go through an agency or whether you go through some of the new initiatives that are essentially like Uber for home care workers. The one thing I would say is that if people are having trouble with the cost of home care, it's always worth having a conversation with the physician of the person you're taking care of and saying, this is why we need this, to see if there might be some additional support through the health insurance that can help pay for that especially if a home care worker is going to keep somebody out of a hospital or going to help them recover from surgery. Those are moments where it might be either the healthcare provider can either help or they can make referrals that make it easier for you to get access to that help. I understand from personal experience, and as I'm sure many of our listeners understand as well, that caregiving is a difficult job. So how can caregivers get help to avoid burnout? And what are the signs that a caregiver needs a break? Caregiving is difficult. It's also complicated. I think about this all the time because I can hardly turn on a movie or a television show without thinking about caregiving because it's so pervasive and ever-present. And it's a mixed emotional experience in that many people, when you look at the research, say that caring for someone they love brings them higher self-esteem. It gives them a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. They feel like they're able to live their values and honor the people they love. And those are all very positive. But on the other side, it is incredibly stressful to take care of someone. It can be physically taxing. Many cases, people are grieving that person. And you might be grieving that person in the midst of trying to take care of them. So you're thinking, what would our life would have been, what could our life have been like if we'd never had this disease in our life? And you're grieving that possibility. And at the same time that you're grieving that, you're trying to be present and with that person. So I think when it comes to burnout, the first place caregivers need to start is to just say, it's okay for me to feel tired, angry, guilty, frustrated. The second thing is for caregivers to say, recognizing that that's how I feel, is there a way that I can take a break or I can get access to respite care so that I can do something to really take care of myself? But the third piece of this is really understanding that caregiving inherently is a very compassionate action. And sometimes if you are the kind of person who gives and gives and gives, you will burn out because you get what's called compassion fatigue. And that's the combination of I have more than I can handle and I'm injured by watching this person I love be in pain or manage difficult disease. When you're feeling that, it helps to come back to sort of that ground level of why am I doing this? And even if the person you're caring for is not able to express gratitude, looking for ways that you can identify, why is it that I'm doing this? What value do I get out of being a caregiver in my life, even if this person's not able to express gratitude to me? Can I take this experience and use it moving forward in my life in a positive way? And some reflection on that every day can be protective against burnout because it helps build up that well of compassion And in combination with something like respite, gives you time to refocus on the other roles that you may play in your day-to-day life. Well, Grace, this has been a very informative and helpful discussion. Thank you so very much for speaking with us today about caregiving. Our guest has been Grace Whiting, President and CEO of the National Alliance for Caregiving. Our listeners can find additional information about lupus 
from the National Resource Center on lupus by going online to lupus.org resources. For the latest information about lupus and COVID-19, please visit lupus.org coronavirus. You can listen to additional episodes from the expert series at lupus.org slash the expert series. There, you can also subscribe to receive alerts when new podcasts become available. If you have questions and wish to speak with one of our health education specialists, go to lupus.org slash health educator or call 1-800-558-0121. And finally, to connect with other people living with lupus from all over the world, check out our online support community, Lupus Connect. Here you can communicate with others, find emotional support, and discuss practical insights for coping with the daily challenges of lupus. You can access the community at lupus.org slash resources slash lupus connect. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day.